We are in Luke chapter 8. I am John Morales with Woodside Royal Oak. It's my honor to bring the Word of God to us today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, these have been turbulent days, much unrest, much darkness, much pain. But even in the midst of change, injustice, and human weakness, your word, O oh Lord, remains. So open our eyes now that we might see by the light of your word. And above all, reveal to us the Lord Jesus and our deep, deep need for him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 8, verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The word of the Lord. Today we begin a five-week series on some of Jesus' parables in the Gospel of Luke. And we're entitling it, Revealed, Stories with Purpose. Once a year, some of us pastors on the sermon writing team take two days to pray and think about the preaching diet of the church. What are we teaching the church in the course of a year? And one of our guiding principles is for us to expose the whole church and the, to all of the Bible, to all the parts of the Bible. So the Gospels, the various sections of the Old Testament, Paul's epistles, and so on. So this year so far, we've done all of Ephesians. Later in the summer, we're going to do seven weeks in the Psalms, but now we are for five weeks in the Gospels, specifically in Luke and specifically in the parables. What's a parable? A parable is a story. Parables are one of Jesus' main teaching devices because they're delightful. They're easy to listen to, but they're also memorable. And Jesus has a message that must be remembered and retold again and again across nations and cultures and centuries but they're also creative. Parables and stories grab your heart, not just your mind, and very importantly, they sneak up on you. A good story draws you in and holds your attention, captures your heart, and then seemingly out of nowhere, they hit you upside the head with a powerful message. Take, for example, the parable that Nathan the prophet brought to David, King David, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah killed. The whole affair was utterly displeasing to God. But here's the thing. David was the king, all-powerful. And it's now Nathan's job to speak truth to power and convict him of his sin. Easy peasy, right? No. You and I know that when we're deep in sin, we're defensive. And we don't want to be confronted. And so what does Nathan do? He comes to David and he brings him a parable. He says to him, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had many, many flocks and herds, but the poor man had only one little ewe lamb that he had brought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children, and it shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. 
Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man was unwilling to slaughter one of his many flocks and herds to prepare a meal for his guest. Instead, he took the ewe lamb from the poor man and prepared it for his guest. And as soon as David heard that parable, his anger was kindled. And he said, the man who has done this deserves to die. And Nathan said to him, you are the man. God made you king and gave you everything. And yet you took Uriah's wife. Powerful. So powerful. But look at what the parable did. It disarmed David and allowed him to identify with the poor man in the story and to rage against the rich man. And then Nathan was able to tell him, you're the rich man. Imagine the outcome if David or Nathan had just simply come to David and walked into his throne room and said, how dare you take Uriah's wife? At best, David would have been angry with him if not had him killed instead of looking at his own heart. You see, that's what parables do. Again and again, Jesus' parables pull the rug from under our feet and prompt us to ask deeper questions. And if there's one thing that you and I need today, if we're going to live the life we've chosen, the reality that we've chosen for ourselves and enter the kingdom of God is ask deeper questions. So let's walk through the parable. First, a tale of four soils. Luke 8, verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We won't spend much time right here because the story is pretty straightforward. What's not so straightforward is the interpretation. Now, unlike our culture, first century Palestine was an agricultural society. Farming was big business. So Jesus told many stories about farming, just like we tell many stories about the things that are big to us. Sports, law firms, aliens. Now, in this story, there's a farmer who goes out and he sows seed, and the seed falls on four different types of soil. Some seed fell along a path. Now, this path has been beaten down by feet, hooves, wheels, and so the seed cannot penetrate. The birds come and take it away. So unless your goal was to feed the birds, the seed is wasted. Next, some seed falls on the rock. Now, in Galilee, much of the land was rocky, with a bedrock often just beneath the surface. And so the, the seed grew, but because the root system was shallow, it withered quickly for lack of moisture. Then we have some seed that falls among thorns. Now, there's nothing wrong with the soil here. The problem here is the competition. There are thorns that are growing up along with the seed competing for light and nourishment, and therefore the seed never matures. And then finally we have the good soil. How do we know that it's good soil? Because of the harvest, because the seed grew and yielded a hundredfold. And so the seed on the path never had a chance. 
on the rock, it quickly withered. Among thorns, it never matured. But on good soil, it grew and yielded an amazing harvest. That's the story. Are you tracking with it? Are you identifying with it? Let's go on. Parables defined. Look at verse 9. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant. Now let's pause there for a second. Just as we need help understanding the meaning of the parables, so did the disciples. And so they come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, what's the meaning of this parable, of this story? Tell us. And before Jesus tells them the meaning of the parable, he tells them the reason for parables. In verse 10, he says, To you... It has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Jesus here makes a distinction between the disciples, to whom the secrets of the kingdom had been given, and the rest, to whom Jesus spoke in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now, there are two things that Jesus is saying here. One that's pretty simple, the other one is more difficult. The simple thing is that there are two kinds of people, those who belong to the kingdom of God and those who don't. That's nothing new there, right? We've, we know that there's always, always been believers and unbelievers. What's more complex and puzzling is what he says next. He says to, to the people on the outside, he speaks in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. What does that mean? What Jesus says there in verse 10 comes from Isaiah chapter 6, where God is commissioning the prophet and he's telling him about the result of preaching to people who worship the wrong thing, the wrong God, an idol. In many places, the Old Testament tells us something very important. We become like what we worship. Take, for example, Psalm 135. It reads like this in verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who made them become like them. So do all who trust in them. The meaning of a parable at face value is not evident. A parable makes certain demands on you. It invites you to ask deeper questions about the speaker, about the story itself. You must play by its rules, so to speak. And so someone who has eyes not working properly or ears not working properly because they're locked in on the wrong object of worship, a parable will say nothing to them unless they're willing to play by its rules and enter into the world of the parable. And in that case, the parable will begin to create space between the person, the person on the outside and their object of worship. It's like my dog when he's chewing on a toy. We have a 16 pound golden doodle. His name is Amos, like the prophet, and we love him. He's like our you little lamb, you know? He shares our food, drinks from our cup, and even sleeps in our arms, so don't mess with our dog. But sometimes Amos will be chewing on a toy and I wanna take it away from him. Now, I could do one of two things. I could wrestle him for it, which can be fun, or I could entice him with a treat. And what's the treat doing? It's creating space between Amos and the toy. Do you see? That's how parables work. 
They create space between the people on the outside and their false objects of worship. They create space between life in this age and life in God's kingdom. And in that space, God might be able to move in and capture their hearts. It's amazing. And so let's see how that very dynamic plays out with us and the four soils in this parable. Let's go on. Which soil are you? Now that Jesus has told them the reason for parables, he tells them the meaning of this parable. Look at verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing, fall away. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. It was difficult for the disciples to understand how it could be that Jesus was God's promised Messiah, come to bring God's kingdom to earth, and yet not everyone was falling in line behind him. And so through this parable, Jesus helps them understand that, yes, the word of God goes out liberally, but the reception to the word is not equal by all. As a matter of fact, only one of the four soils he brings up is good. Three out of four, for one reason or another, reject the message. So which soil are you? Let's get into the four. The people along the path are those, he says, who receive the word, but then the devil comes and takes it away just as fast so that they're not able to believe and be saved. How tragic. Perhaps you remember when you first came to faith and you were so excited about Jesus. Nothing compared with his glory. Not baseball, not a girlfriend, not your most expensive things. Your eyes and ears had been opened to him, to his glory, and you were thrilled. And so you told your friends, and a number of them came to church with you, and they heard the same thing you heard. And so afterwards, you asked them excitedly, so what do you think? And they said to you, um, not really my thing. And inside you're going, what? That's the path. The word bounces off as quickly as it lands. There's no understanding, no belief, no spiritual life. Is that you? Then we have the people on the rock. Now, these are the people who hear the word, and at first, they're pumped. They receive it. They're excited. They're with you. They're like, yes, Jesus is amazing. But then testing comes, and it always comes, and they bail. Maybe uh, an old girlfriend or boyfriend called. Maybe they lost a job, and they thought that if God was real and really loved them, he would not let that happen to them. Maybe their careers are just shooting up, and they just don't have time for this God and church stuff. I've met many people through the years like that. And it's heartbreaking, heartbreaking to see their flame go out. Then we have the people among thorns. 
Now, these are the ones who receive the word and they're going along, but competition comes. Competition for their allegiance. And the competition chokes out God's word. What's the competition? The cares, riches, and pleasures of life. And I think that this is basically where a lot of the church in the West lives. We're divided. We love what Jesus has to offer, and we love what America has to offer. We love pleasure, the pleasure of food, of sports, of entertainment, the pleasure of sex and romance, the pleasure of travel and exciting exotic things. We love pleasure and we love riches. We push hard to make more, to have more, to build more, to save more. And it's not just riches, it's also the cares of this life. Because maybe you're listening to this and you would say, ah, that's not me. I'm not trying to become rich, I'm just trying to make a living and survive. Yes. But that's precisely why these things can choke our passion for God and His Word and His kingdom and making disciples of Jesus. Because all of these things keep us so busy. We're busy with the cares of life. You see, none of these things is sinful in and of itself, which is why they all can have a place in our lives, and it's why they can become thorns for us and we never mature. And to be honest with you, I'm concerned that many of the people I pastor, that's where they live. I'm concerned for myself. I have cares in this life. I have a house and a family, a car that has to be fixed, and I have to hear Jesus' word here warning me. Is there competition for your allegiance, John? Do I have your heart, or is your heart divided? How about you? And then finally, we have the good soil. Now, these are the people who receive the word and they hold it fast, Jesus says, and uh, they hold it fast with an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Now, how do we know that we're the good soil? By the harvest, because of our fruit. Jesus says elsewhere, you will know them by their fruit. We have a new king and we have a new treasure and we store that treasure in heaven, not on earth. Our love affair with the cares and riches and pleasures of this life has been replaced with a new love, a love for God, so that now we love God with all our heart and soul and mind, and we love doing His work. Our hearts have been transformed. You see, a heart that truly receives the Word of God reveals the work of God. So many people in our church family reveal the work of God in your lives, by the way that you serve others and you love your neighbors and you even love your enemies, by the way that you seek first God's kingdom, the way that you search diligently the word of God so that you may know your God better. Just this past week, I heard something so cool. A couple at our campus during this whole quarantine thing, they've been, they have little children and they've been waking up at 4.30 in the morning, both of them, to be in the Word and to pray before the rockers begins. How awesome is that? But you see, that is the good soil and the seed bearing fruit for God. And so we demonstrate that we are the good soil by all these different things in our lives that are bearing fruit. We demonstrate it as we proclaim by word and deed that Jesus is Lord. And so which soil are you? What type of heart do you have? The hard heart of the path, the shallow heart of the rock, 
the divided heart among thorns, or the good heart of the good soil that bears much fruit. Through this parable, Jesus is inviting us to see ourselves in all of these descriptions and want to become the good soil, the ones that bear 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. Oh, we could do a whole series talking about what Scripture teaches us about the human heart as the seat of worship, the seat of our affection, the seat of our deepest trust. But let me just leave you with this. Are you the good soil? The one that receives the word of God with an honest and good heart? It's not a trivial question. Are you good? Because in another part of this gospel, in chapter 18, Jesus tells us that no one is good except God alone. So how do you get a good heart? Because in yet another part of this same gospel, chapter 11, Jesus tells us that we are evil. So we're evil and only God is good. So let me ask you again, how do we become the fourth soil? The one that with an honest and good heart takes hold of the word. Because Jesus has told us that we are not good and honest. It's like telling a bunch of people that are drowning in the ocean because they can't swim, saying to them, those of you who can swim will make it safely to shore. Keep trying harder. How? And you see, here is where the parables begin to do their thing. By compelling us to ask deeper questions, to play by the rules, to enter into the world of God's kingdom. Because remember, a parable creates space between us and the false objects of our worship. They create space between the values of this age and the values in God's kingdom. Space between life in this age and life in God's kingdom. And in that space, perhaps God could move in and capture our hearts. Because when I hear Jesus' invitation to me to be the honest and good soil, having a good heart, and yet I also hear him tell, him, tell me that I am evil and that only God is good, what does that do to me? It should humble me. It should make me admit that my heart is hard. My heart is shallow. My heart is divided. And I cannot say, if I look, look to Jesus' perfection, that I have a good heart. So this is devastating because Jesus is telling me to have a good heart, and yet I don't have one. And so I keep listening to him. I must keep listening to him more closely. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so I keep listening to him. I cling to him and I keep reading the gospel all the way to the end. Because as I keep reading and I come to the night before his death, I find gold. Because that night he told his disciples as he was holding the bread and the cup, he said, this is my body given for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do you see? Do you see? Jesus came to give his life for us because we're evil. He came to establish the new covenant in his blood by which God promises to us, I will give you a new heart. This is God speaking to us in Ezekiel. You cannot give yourself a good heart ever. You could spend an eternity trying and you will never get there. God promises to us, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. 
amazing. Jesus came to give his life for us so that as we give our lives to him, we get a new heart. A heart that's not hard or shallow or divided, but a heart that loves the Lord our God above all else. How do we get a new heart? In Christ alone. If you want Jesus to give you a new heart, ask him. He tells us to ask, to seek, to knock, ask him. Tell him, Lord Jesus, I confess to you that my heart is hard. My heart is shallow. My heart is divided. I could never give myself a new heart. But I trust you. Give me the new heart of the new covenant. He's so good. He will answer you. And I would encourage you to connect with us through the website. We would love to lead you to Christ. How do we get a new heart? In Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Father, we thank you for the parables. Oh, what a gift. These amazing stories that cause us to ask deeper questions to play by their rules, to want to find out more about Jesus, about you, about this incredible world with different values, this kingdom that you have brought to earth. Father, thank you for these stories with eternal purpose. Father, I pray for our hearts. Father, I pray for those of us who believe in you and who know you and love you. Father, I pray that we would know, that we would be crystal clear on this, that we could never give ourselves a new heart, that it is God himself who gives us a new heart because we hold fast to his son. We love him. So thank you, God, for the new heart of the new covenant by which we truly are able to love you from within. And Father, I pray for anyone who's listening to this message who does not know Jesus Christ, who does not know you, and who would ask you, give me this new heart, O God. O Lord, answer them. Draw them to yourself. Allow them to connect to the church family that they may grow and not wither quickly, but mature and prosper. And Father, I pray for all of us that our lives would truly reveal the work of God. We love you. We worship you. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.